You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to Ina Pratt Free Library's Writer's Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and it is my pleasure and honor to introduce this evening special, our special guest author, Brigitte Davis. She is professor of journalism and the writing professions at Baroque College, CUNY, where she teaches creative film and narrative writing and is director of the Sidney Harmon Writer-in-Residence Program a graduate of Spelman College in Atlanta and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She is the director of the award-winning feature film, Naked Acts, as well as the author of two novels, Into the Go Slow and Shifting Through Neutral. A major advocate for promoting and nourishing literary talent by people of color, Davis is co-founder and curator for Words at Weeksville, a monthly reading series held at Weeksville Heritage Center in Central Brooklyn. She also facilitates writing workshops for junior faculty of color and women seeking to complete and publish their creative works. With an early career as a newspaper reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Davis's articles have appeared in a host of newspapers and magazines. Her reviews and essays have appeared in the Washington Post, Essence, O, The Oprah Magazine, TheRoots.com, Salon, and Writer's Digest. This evening, Brigitte Davis will discuss her first nonfiction work, The World According to Fanny Davis, set against the dramatic backdrop of 1960s and 70s Detroit. David's stirring memoir tells the story of how her larger-than-life mother used Detroit's illegal lottery to support her family. Please join me in welcoming Bridget Davis to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here. It's really a pleasure. I, I'm, I'm going to put my water here. Is that distracting? It slides if I put it. Um, when I published my novel a few years ago, it just so happened that I wasn't able to coordinate a reading at Enoch Pratt, and it was a disappointment for me. So I decided when this book was coming out, I was going to work on that early so that I could have this moment, and it worked out. So I'm really, I'm very pleased, and thank you all for being here. I see a few familiar faces. Hi, I'm Vicki. So I'm really pleased about that, too. So I thought um, what I'll do is I'll read from the book about a 10 or 12-minute excerpt. But before I do that, I thought I would share with you a little story. Um, something about being in a library, a beautiful library, actually, makes me want to share this. A lot of people have asked me, how did you keep that secret? How did you keep? the secret that your mother was running this illegal lottery business from your home, especially when you were a child. Like, how does a child keep a secret? And I would always say to people, it was pretty easy. Like, I never felt compelled to tell. And I could see in people's faces that they weren't that satisfied. They were like, 
hmm, like really? <laughs> so I thought about it a little more and I realized a library had a lot to do with that. It's true, a library. Um, I grew up in Detroit, obviously. Detroit has a gorgeous, old, beautiful library on Woodward Avenue, which was one of my favorite places in the world. Um, and I used to go regularly with my sister. We'd take the bus, the Woodward bus, and we'd go to this library. And I was 10 years old. I remember it vividly. I never stayed in the children's section of the library. I was one of those kids. I would wander around. So there I am, 10 years old, and a new book is on display along with other newly published books. And I saw this book, and the title was Daddy Was a Number Runner. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, I just could not believe those words were written on the cover of a book. This thing that I knew about but I knew was a big secret, I just couldn't believe it. It was stunning. And I actually got nervous. Um, but I did pick up the book. I picked it up. I looked at it. It had a great cover on it with this little girl. And I opened it up. I just had enough nerve to open it to, like, the first page. And somebody named James Baldwin had written the foreword. But I was just like, close that book. And I put it back on the shelf because I was really nervous, scared strangely enough, that maybe this was taboo. Like picking up the book, reading it, why was it there? How did that happen, that this secret was on the cover of a book? And I went home, I, I met my sister, and we went back home on the bus, and I never told her about it. I didn't even mention it. I was just not sure what it all meant. And this thing happened. Literally about a week later, I came home from school, <clears throat> and my mom had changed my bedroom furniture. This was not really, like, unusual for her. She was spontaneous and generous like that, but she, got, she had decided to get me brand-new bedroom furniture. So I walk in after school, and my room is transformed. It has beautiful twin beds and little nightstand, and most importantly, it has a desk with a chair and a brand new journal, a brand new diary on the, on the desk. And I had a new bookshelf. I honestly didn't even know that bedrooms had bookshelves, <laughs> but now I had one. And on the bookshelf was one book. Daddy was a number runner. So I, of course, devoured that book. My mother said nothing to me. There was no conversation. I devoured it. And that book was about a little girl my age named Francie, who was growing up in 1930s Harlem during the Depression, and her daddy was a number runner. And that's how they were basically finding the money to survive the Depression by, you know, sort of using this informal economy to survive. But for me, at 10 years old, I just thought, there is someone else in the world who shares my secret. And I believed that Francie and I had that secret that we kept together, that we were friends. It did not matter to me that she was in a book. She was real to me. And when I look back, 
I'm pretty convinced that the reason I was able to keep that secret so easily is because I felt I was sharing it with someone. I didn't have to tell my real-life girlfriends about what my mom was doing because Francie and I understood each other. And I guess I like telling that story in part because it reminds me of the transformative quality of literature. I mean, I read that book and I knew I want to be a writer. And one day, I'm going to write a book like this. Now, it took a while. (laughs) It took decades. But really, Daddy Was a Number Runner inspired this book. And then, just last week, I had the privilege of having an event, a conversation with the author of Daddy Was a Number Runner. Louise Merriweather is 95, and if you happen to be on Instagram, you can see the pictures of us from this event last Sunday at a Harlem brunch, where she read from her work, I read from mine, and we talked about the power, you know, of capturing these kinds of autobiographical stories. And everyone who commented on the photo kept saying, who in this picture is 95? (laughs) She looks amazing. That's just like a sort of special little benefit to the story, but it really, it's one of the most beautiful things that has come out of this whole experience for me. To be able to talk with my literary hero, to tell her what that book meant to me, to have her sign my original copy that my mother bought for me and put on that shelf. She signed it, she was like, she looked at the book and she said, wow, I don't even have this edition because it was the original one, and she signed it, Dear Bridgette, my daddy, your mama, were number runners, and we are soul sisters. Yeah, so I love, you know, I love that the library really helped me to sort of live a life in this very unusual household. I feel like books helped me get through that. So, um, So that's how I was able to keep that secret. So what I'm going to share with you now is just an excerpt uh, from the prologue, from the beginning of the book, that gives you a glimpse into what it was like to live in that household and sort of be a part of this experience of my mom running her business. Um, In full sight of all of us, but obviously the public, the people outside of our home didn't know. On a morning like most, I sit beside Mama at the dining room table eating my bowl of sugar-frosted flakes and watching her work. She's on the telephone, its receiver in the crook of her neck as she records her customers' three-digit bets in a spiral notebook, repeating each one. The crystal chandelier blazes above. Five, four, two, four, quarter. Six, nine, three, straight for 50 cents. Is this both races, Miss Queenie? Detroit and Pontiac? Okay. 388 straight for a quarter. Uh huh. 475 straight for 50 cents. 110, box for a dollar. Mama writes the numbers 110, draws a box around them, hesitates. You know, I got customers been playing 110 all week. Yeah, it's a fancy number. Oh, did you? What did you dream? He was a hunchback? Is that what the Red Devil Dream Book say it play for? Now that I didn't know. I know theater plays for 110. Well, I can, I can take it for a dollar, but since it's a fancy, I can't take it for more than that. You understand. 
What else, Miss Queenie? Six eight four for fifty cents boxed. Uh huh. Nine seven two straight for a dollar. I find comfort in Mama's voice, in the familiar rhythmic recitation of numbers. I bring the bowl to my lips and drink the last of the sweetened milk before I rise and kiss Mama's forehead. She mouths bye-bye as I join my sister Rita, who's waiting on the porch. Together, we walk three long blocks to Winter Halter Elementary and Junior High School, passing by the lush Russell Woods Park. I am a first grader. In class, I wait in line to show my teacher, Miss Miller, my assignment. We have had to color paper petals, cut them out, and paste them onto a picture of a flower. I like mine, as I have glued each one just at the base so that the petals now reach out into a pop-up flower. Miss Miller looks over my work, gives it one star instead of two, and stops me before I can return to my seat. You sure do have a lot of shoes, she says. Last week, she asked what my father did for a living, and because I knew never to disclose the family business, I said, he doesn't work. She asked, well, what does your mother do? I froze. I'm not sure, I lied. I knew my mother was in the numbers, but I also knew not to tell that to anyone. I worried that my vague answer was the wrong one, but I didn't know a better response. No one had told me yet what I should say. Now, with Miss Miller staring at me, I look down at my feet, which are clad in, I still remember, light blue patent leather slip-ons with lace trim buckles a favorite pair bought to match a brocade ensemble that I have just worn for Easter. I nod, not knowing what else to do. Before you sit down, I want you to name every pair of shoes you have. She insists. Go ahead. There is no lightness in her voice. Anxious, I go through a mental inventory of the shoes that line the built-in rack in my bedroom closet. I managed to recall 10 pairs in various colors and styles. The black and white polka dotted ones with a bow tie, the buckled ruby red ones, the salmon pink lace-ups. 10 pairs is an awful lot, says Miss Miller. Her blue eyes fix on me with something I can't name, but which I would now call disdain and she orders me to take my seat. I can feel my classmates staring at me as I return to my table. Is it wrong to have so many pairs of shoes? Did my mother get them in a bad way? The next day in class, Miss Miller calls me back to her desk. I can smell the hairspray in her teased blonde bouffant. You didn't mention you had white shoes, she says. Indeed, I'm wearing a white version of the same pair I wore the previous day. I feel as though I have been caught in a lie, and I know that I've disappointed my teacher. 
I worry that I'll get in trouble at school or worse at home. I'm sorry, I whisper. Miss Miller shakes her head in disgust and dismisses me with a wave of her hand. I return to my desk, trying hard not to look down at my shoes. I am ashamed of them. That evening, I tell Mama what happened. But I wait until after she's finished taking her customers' bets and before the day's winning numbers come out. I have already learned that the best time to tell Mama difficult news, something that could get you in trouble, is during that brief, expectant pause in the day. That's when Mama's least distracted and still in a good mood. She listens, and when I confess I forgot to tell Miss Miller about the 11th pair of shoes, her dark eyes flash with anger. I fear a spanking. That's none of her damn business, she says. Who does she think she is? Before I can feel relief that she's not mad at me, Mama says, Get your coat and let's go. I do as I'm told. Mama throws on her soft blue leather coat, the color of the periwinkle crayon in my Crayola box, and together we slide into her new Buick Riviera. Are we headed back to school to confront Miss Miller? Thank God, no. As Mama heads south, away from Winterhalter Elementary. She soon turns onto 2nd Avenue, drives to the corner of Lothrop, and parks in front of the new center building. There sits Saks Fifth Avenue. We enter through regal double doors, and I instantly fall in love with the store's marble floors and brass elevators and bright chandeliers. I feel lucky just being here. Mama takes my hand, and leads me to the children's shoe department, where an array of options spreads before us. She points to a pair of yellow patent leather shoes. Those are pretty, she says. Perhaps the saleswoman looks at us askance, given how rare it must have been to see black people inside Detroit's upscale shops in the 60s, but I don't remember. What I do remember is how nonchalantly Mama opens her wallet, pulls out a $100 bill, and pays for the shoes, while the saleswoman looks at her the way Miss Miller looked at me. When we get home, Mama says, you're going to wear these to school tomorrow. And you better tell that damn teacher of yours that you actually have a dozen pair of shoes, you hear me? The next day, I wear my brand new shoes with a matching yellow knit dress. Nervous, as I walk up to my teacher's desk, I announce, Miss Miller, I have 12 pairs of shoes. She looks down at my feet and then levels those blue eyes at my face. Sit down. Miss Miller never says another word to me. I feel her rejection, but I'm also relieved. I no longer have to worry about what I wear to school or feel bad about my nice things. 
I feel both protected and indulged by mama. Growing up, that's how it was for me and my three older sisters and my brother. We lived well, thanks to mama and her numbers, which inured us from judgment. My mother's message to black and white folks alike was clear. It's nobody's business what I do for my children, nor how I manage to do it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Nobody's business. <laughs> so I could read a little more, or I could take questions. I love the question and answer part. I don't know. How are you guys feeling? Would you like to? You tell me. Yeah. What in, what caused me to write the book? Your aunt. My you aunt? I had a discussion about writing the yes, book. Yes, absolutely. What yeah. was her reaction to yeah. it? Yeah, so essentially what happened is that um, about, let's see, nine years ago, nine years ago, my son saw a photograph of my mother that I kept on a side table. And he looked at it. He was only 10 at the time. He looked at this photograph and he said to me, Mom, what was she like? And I said, oh, she was amazing. Your grandmother was amazing. But in my heart, I was just devastated because it hit me. It hit me. I had, just, I had done such a great job of keeping my mother's secret that I had actually kept my mother's secret from my children. And that devastated me. I just thought, this can't be. And that was really the moment when I decided, okay, whatever my issues are around revealing her secret, it has to stop. And I literally flew to Detroit shortly after that, and I asked my mom's one surviving sister, her baby sister, um, I sat down with her. She was having her 80th birthday. And I said to my Aunt Florence, how would you feel if, you know, I wrote about Fanny and I wrote about, you know, Mama and her life in the numbers? I was so nervous. <laughs> I had made up my mind that if she didn't approve, I wouldn't do it. I just thought it's not that important. But... She looked at me and she said, oh, hell, I'll help you tell that story. Because what your mama did was unheard of. And folks ought to know. They ought to know. So I was relieved. And then she said, and listen, I know Fanny made sure you didn't have to know any of the details about the numbers. So I'll tell you about that, too. And then I was really relieved because I was like, I'm going to write this book, but I don't really understand how the numbers work. I've lived around it, but I never had to r help run the business, so oh my god I hope I can do it and when my aunt was like I'll help you then I thought well I have her blessing and I have her support so I have no more excuses yeah so and nine short years later <laughs> here I am did your mother retire or was she caught did she retire oh she was never caught and she ran her numbers until her death yeah, so, and she, basically, that means that my mom 
ran her numbers business for 34 years. My mom played the numbers like the lottery. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. I mean, look, people don't know this, but, um, I mean, a lot of people do, but it's hard to imagine a time before the lottery. But state lotteries did not become prevalent until the late 60s and through the 70s. In New York, it took to 1980 before New York got a state lottery. So prior to that, people played this underground informal lottery game throughout the United States. And uh, basically, it was a complete informal economy that was thriving in plain sight. Black folks of a certain age all know about the numbers. And they all know about that business and what it generated for communities, too. So um, it did a lot, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's, and it's not that different from what you can play today in the legal lottery. They basically just ripped it off. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did she get started? She and my dad and my three older siblings were part of the Great Migration. My parents both were from Nashville. Um, and had been there for, you know, their whole lives. My mom's family had been there for generations. Her grandfather was born into slavery in Nashville. So they had deep roots in Nashville. But like so many other African Americans, they uprooted themselves to create better opportunities for their children and to really just have some uh, civil liberties, you know, the opportunity to get a decent job in the auto plants was my father's goal. My mom wanted her kids to go to a decent school that wasn't um, segregated and, and inferior. She wanted to be able to vote. You know, it's hard to imagine, but the Voting Rights Act is only, it, I mean, it, it occurred in my lifetime. <laughs> You know, people forget that. So that's what brought her to Net, to Detroit. What they weren't prepared for was the unbelievable sort of northern northern discrimination that they encountered. And so they had to live, um, pay a lot of money in rent to live in very inferior housing. My father could not get steady work. And they had these young children. And my mom was not accustomed to what they found themselves living, which was in poverty. My my parents didn't know anything about that in Nashville. My mom, my mom's father was an entrepreneur. He was a self-employed businessman, and so she had come up in a very solid working-class family. So poverty was just a devastating experience, and she decided this cannot be, no way. And she saw her neighbors playing these numbers putting, you know, their dimes and their nickels on three digits, hoping to bet, hoping these bets would win. And she thought, you know what, they could give their bets to me. Why not? And she showed up to her brother John's home. He was already living in Detroit. He was a horseman and doing pretty well um, exercising horses at the local racetrack. He actually went on to become one of the first African-American horse trainers in the country. He was very gifted. But anyway, he had a solid life, and she showed up at his door. He told me that she woke him up and everything, banged on his door in the middle of the night, stepped into his living room, refused to take her coat off, and just said to him, John, I believe that I can bank the numbers. I know I can do it, but I need 
to borrow $100. Can you loan it to me? And he said at the time he heard her out. It made sense to him. And he just said to her, all right, Fanny, I'll loan it to you. And that same year, Barry Gordy was borrowing $800 from his family fund to start Motown, 1958. Um, And she launched her business that way with that $100. Yeah. And he said to me, I never made her pay me back. (laughs) Yeah. So. You started. Oh, I'm sorry. She's been waiting. (laughs) How are you? It's good to see you. Um, talk about politics kings. So mm-hmm. I'm just so fascinated that you know there's a policy queen. Yeah, here. yeah. And um, did your mom ever find herself in confrontations with other policy numbers? Yeah, uh, she's asked. Oh, yeah. Was yeah. there ever any like conflict, confrontation right. with other people who were running numbers? Yeah. So it's interesting. Policy was the the sort of precursor to that elegant system called the numbers. The the numbers were invented by a black man in Harlem. Prior to that, people played policy. That was a completely white-run and executed illegal gambling business Um, and much more convoluted, much more convoluted. And it had policy kings and queens. Um, but when the numbers came along and it changed how people played this sort of betting game, um, it also sort of created, a new structure was created. So in the hierarchy, imagine my mom is like sort of like middle management in the sense that she was able to create a very solid middle class life for us. But she was not like, say, this man called, called Eddie Wingate, who by the 60s was already a millionaire and owned a lot of businesses and was you know, notorious um, and hardcore and probably in bed with the mafia. You know, my mom knew that the mafia was involved in the numbers but never was encountering any of them because she kept her business relatively small, you know, and contained. It was a true home business. So she did almost every job. I mean, she did kind of employed people to help her out from time to time, but it was a manageable business, and that was intentional. My mom was not interested in being a policy queen. She wanted to provide for her children, and she didn't want to have to leave them to do the only jobs available to black women in Detroit at that time. 75% of black women employed in the city in those years were either doing day work, which is basically cleaning white women's homes, um, or they were in, at the lowest rung in the worst jobs in the factory being paid less than the men for long hours. Or they were cleaning offices. And she didn't think she was above that. My mother believed in hard work, but she said that that to her was risky. Why would she work that hard in those menial jobs for so little money and have to leave her children to raise themselves? She felt it wasn't worth it. So she decided, I've got to figure something out, you know. So, yeah, she was, I think she was a badass, you know. (laughs) I think she was a badass woman, you know. But not in the sense of, she was tough, she had to be. She was a woman in this business. Um, For a long time, she was the only woman in Detroit at that level of being a banker. Something I didn't know until I started doing research. Um, But she was not greedy, you know, it, money for her wasn't about 
um, an end an end in and of itself. It was about what it could provide. And she was uh, known as much for her generosity as she was for the fact that she, you know, was running her own business. Many people had no idea that she was in the numbers. Many people had no idea, but they knew that Fanny was generous. They knew that she was a pillar of the community in that way. You know, men were pillars in their way. She was in hers. You know, come on in the house. Do you need something to eat? Things are a little rough with your husband right now. Why don't you just sleep over in one of our extra rooms for a few days till things cool down? You're trying to go to college. Let me help you with that. I mean, those are the ways that my mom took what she made and used that uh, sort of like wealth, essentially, to help to better other people's conditions. She got excited when black folks were doing well. Like, that really excited her especially if people were trying to better their lives. That inspired her. She wanted to help them. So um, I think that's how she managed to not get caught. I really do. Because she wasn't, she was so calculated and so reasoned and really cautious, you know. I think it saved her. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just thinking there must have been some type of stigma attached to being a numbers runner. And I'm wondering how did that play out in terms of you guys were living fairly well. Mm -hmm. It sounds maybe at middle class level. How did yeah. that play out in terms of, you know, who um, you associated with, mm -hmm. who you're kind of, you know. Yeah, it's such a great question. It's, it's really interesting to think about. I think a few things were at play. First of all, Detroit was unique. Uh, there's a couple Detroiters in the audience. I'm sure they can vouch for that, right, Kier? <laughs> Detroit was unique because it was a predominantly black city at a time when major cities were not predominantly black. Even in the 60s and 70s, it was like 67% black because of white flight. It also had two thriving economies. It had Motown and it had the auto industry. The auto industry created the middle class in this country, that and the help of unions, so that people were able to live well, especially if they did overtime, time and a half, you know. They could make good money and they could have the ability to buy lovely homes because, again, that white flight meant that white folks had to sell their homes to somebody. So just in my mom's case, we had a we grew up in a beautiful four-bedroom colonial um, that a white man leaving the city to move to the suburbs sold to her. How he had to sell it to her, that's another story we might get into. But um, so, so I think that some of what was going on is that people were used to seeing black folks live well, you know. So it, it wasn't like we really stood out. There was that first thing there. And again, my mother was understated, so she never moved to the suburbs. She never moved to a huge house in one of the tonier neighborhoods. She lived in, we lived in a nice neighborhood, but it wasn't like exclusivity, because that draws attention. She did not even like Cadillacs. Like, she had a thing about Cadillacs. She just thought they were ostentatious and tacky. So, you know, she never did that, bought the big fat you know, fabulous car to draw attention to herself. So, so we didn't have to worry about that. And the other thing is, the numbers had a stigma, it's true, particularly with religious folks, but 
not, but there was that other side where everybody accepted that it existed and people actually saw what that money was doing for the community. And people were secretly treating those numbers, mostly numbers men, as pillars of the community. They just weren't talking about it. And when I go out on tour now, I've been throughout the country, I've had people stand up and testify and say, oh my God, to hear you talk about the numbers on NPR. Like, what a mind sort of, like, thing to have to, because we had to keep it secret. But but what starts to unearth for a lot of people is their gratitude that I have attached no stigma to it myself, that I talk about it with pride and dignity. And then that allows them to tell their stories, too, of, of you know, in my city, Numbers Men saved the NAACP, saved it. There's no other word for it. It was fledgling. And they stepped in and infused it with cash. Thank goodness, because it became the biggest chapter in the country during the Civil Rights Movement. So that's the stories we all knew and had been sort of shared internally but not talked about um, until, you know, one of us decided to go public. (laughs) Um, I would also say that uh, it's a crazy thing to believe, but it's true. I interviewed a lot of my own friends to write this book. I did over two dozen interviews across several years before I actually started writing the book. And most people thought I was interviewing them just to talk about my mom, whom people loved. And she was, as I said, like this, like, you know, matriarch of the community. And they want to talk about what she had done for them, et cetera. But, for instance, my friend I, I've been best friends with since fourth grade, when I said to her, did you know, <laughs> did you know that my mom ran numbers? She said to me, what? <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying to me. <laughs> and she thought about it. She was like, no, but now that you mention it, I knew she was in charge. I did, just didn't know exactly what she was in charge of. But I knew she was that type of person. Um, and, my, and my friend was in my house all the time, all the time. And that's basically the the way in which we were able to keep that secret, you know. So we didn't have to worry about jealousy because if folks did know, that's because they were her customers. And they liked to see that the woman that they were turning their numbers into was doing well. Because, you know, folks who gamble, folks who play numbers, they're superstitious. They want to do business with somebody who's doing well. So in that case, people were happy to see us living well. Um, I think her generosity helped, too. I think it kind of diffused what might have been natural tendencies toward jealousy. I think um, I think that helped, too. Yeah. Hey, Frank. Yeah. Yeah. I think that... Um, when people would ask me, I would say, oh, she's in real estate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I would say she's in real estate, which wasn't totally untrue because she did own some property and she did have tenants. No, it was never that much uh, activity. It was very discreet. 
I mean, some people came, but just like visiting, right? Uh, and also, um, she did a lot of business over the phone, right? And also, it was word of mouth. So she had no customers that she didn't know or who had not recommended her to them, you know? So those are the ways in which you make sure it doesn't look like some Grand Central Station or something, you know? So. Hi, Bridget. Hi. How are you? Doing? How are you? I'm well. Good. Uh, did your mom keep the income she made from it in the house, or did she put it in the bank under smaller amounts that would yeah. draw attention? My mom had a close relationship with her local banker, um, always uh, African-American women managers, I seem to remember. I'd go to the bank with her, and she'd, she'd want to see the manager. She wouldn't go to the teller. And she'd often have, you know, deposits that she needed to make, sometimes checks. People sometimes paid her with checks. Yeah, and you could, you know, uh, endorse them, sign them over to her. So she needed a banker who understood and wasn't going to ask too many questions. So in that way, she did have a relationship with bankers. Um, she had a safe deposit box. I suspect she kept some, some cash in there or valuables. Um, but most of the time, the money was at home. It was in that steel safe, the combination lock in her closet. In her bedroom closet, yeah, I remember it vividly. Um, because, you know, it's a cash business. So you're taking in cash, and you also have to pay out cash when people hit. So, yeah, I, I watched her many days go to that safe, pull out that cash. I watched her count money so many times I couldn't even tell you how many. Yeah, she was very good at counting cash, by the way. She had a system. She had a method. She turned every president's face in the same direction. You know, you see people do that? Yeah. She was fast. Yeah. And she made the denominations in descending order. It was a system. Yeah. Hi. So 67 was a tough year in Detroit. Yeah. And then 68, they had this miracle World Series win, which was great. Yeah. How did that affect the business or did it affect it at all? The uprising, you know, what the press called the race riots, the uprising definitely affected the city because it raged on for five days and everything shut down, including the numbers business. Um, it was a scary time uh, because, as you may know, the National Guard, the president had the National Guard brought in um, with tanks, one of which more than one rolled down my street. Uh, we were all made to li lie prone in the house, crawling around on our hands and knees so we'd be below windows. Uh, the threat of our house being set on fire was ever-present. My father stayed up every night guarding the house. It was pretty terrifying. Um, over 30 African Americans were shot and killed during that riot. And uh, the interesting thing is, after those five days... After a few days, the numbers picked back up. It started up again. Life went back to how it had been because people had to maintain their livelihoods. So that's, so it did stop for several days, and then it started again. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm Lori's husband from Detroit. Hi, Bridget. Hi, how are you? Yeah. Lori Davis. Yes. Oh, good to see you. So, yeah, she's a friend of my friend who I've known since fourth grade who was like, you did what? Your mom did what? Yeah. But, but I do have a question. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm from Pittsburgh, and I remember the number man, and he knew everybody. I mean, just everybody knew the number man. So it wasn't, for us, it wasn't even like it was illegal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts in terms of, do you think, because the community has changed, do you think something like that could really exist? You know, I mean, because community just doesn't feel the same. You know, I'm pretty nostalgic about it because my memories around the numbers, the community, my mom's customers, many of whom were her friends, is all pretty positive. Because if you could feel community happening in front of you. You knew that when people hit, you know, what a joyous moment, and you got to share in that. And I knew my mom had played a role in that. And I knew that when folks were hitting, they were sharing the wealth. They were helping friends out and helping family out, and that's a good thing. I also understood that those big numbers men that folks admired were making sure folks could buy a home because African Americans could not get home loans in the standard ways that others could. They could not go to a bank and apply for a mortgage because if you decided you wanted to buy a home in a neighborhood and you were black, that means that that neighborhood is no longer stable and you were high risk. That was called redlining. And so the FHA was not going to insure that loan. So banks could turn you down. So numbers men would step in often and provide the loans for folks to get houses. The standard, most basic sign of trying to pursue your American dream and get a foothold into a middle-class life. Buy a home. It's not that they didn't have the money. They weren't allowed to do it for a long time. So they stepped in in that way. You know, if somebody was trying to get to college, numbers men would have their, what they didn't call them scholarships. They just said, here's some money to help you do that. They wanted to uplift the race. They were race men. And in my mom's case, race women. That, that was part and parcel of what it meant to be a numbers person, a numbers runner, all that came with it. So what is the equivalent today? What do we have now that allows you to have an, an, an economy where those dollars not only stay in the black community but turn over multiple times? So that the woman who has the hair salon, she's benefiting from the numbers business too. The guy with his franchise, you know, for McDonald's, he's, he's, he's also benefiting. You know, that's how you keep a community vibrant. Folks have money to patronize other businesses. I don't know the equivalent today. I don't think it exists. Yeah. Okay. Be positive. <laughs> Well, that's not generating dollars in the community. All that money is going out one direction. One direction. Yeah. Yes, hi. My um, mm -hmm. great uncle in Philadelphia was a numbers runner mm -hmm. in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And mm. I remember going up there to visit as a child. I would always ask my great aunt, well, what is Uncle Ernest's business? She said <laughs> he was a businessman. Mm -hmm. And I never knew until I was a teenager, what right. the business was. Right. <laughs> he didn't operate out of his house, and he never got caught. Yeah. They Most did across the street from the police station. Yeah. And yeah, we lived the less. Knew they knew him. Very well, he was always Mr. Ernest. Yeah. They knew him very well. Yeah. 
So it's quite interesting. It was a part of the culture at that time. It was part of the culture. And I will say that, let's be clear, police were in on the whole bribery piece of it at, a, at certain points so that they were getting paid, you know, to let that, let that business thrive, turning and looking the other way. So, yeah, there was that, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can we ask her? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I have a thank you and a question. I want to thank you very much for writing this book. I used to live in Asheville, North Carolina, and we had a lot of corruption there. And one day, one of the residents told me that somebody who had died, it was an unsolved mystery, was running numbers. And I was absolutely clueless to what that woman was telling me. <laughs> I was just totally didn't know what she like, was talking about. Yeah. Um, and that was in 1990. And um, in the 90s or so. So I'm just really glad that you wrote this book because this is actually American history. Yeah. It's probably global history, but yeah. if you don't yeah. know about it. Um, my question is, how did your... Did your, what did, did your father think about you writing this book? Well, my father died many years ago. He died, actually, when I was turning 18, so I lost him very early. But he and my mom, in the early days, built the business together in the sense that it was all her brainchild and her acumen and skill set. But he would do the driving for her. He would do the collecting for her. He would get those bets. He actually went to jail, for, you know, I say for her, but they got stopped on a so-called traffic violation, um, and they got caught with tickets. My father, you know, he's the one who said it's me and served the time. It was never much. It was like in and out. But I remember that's one of the things that stays with me that he said to me, jail's no place for a woman. That's my job. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he was, uh, you know, grateful, I think, that she had figured something out, you know? Yeah. And we have time for about two more questions. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Hi. I just wanted to say I loved, loved, loved your book. Thank um, you. Yeah, thank you for writing it. My parents or my father's people came up during the Great Migration, mm -hmm. auto industry, all of those parallels. And one thing, several things have stood out to me in the book. One was you mentioned that because your mom wasn't trying to be um, something or run with, with um, the upper crust, mm -hmm. like Jack and Jill, mm -hmm. that she was able to navigate in a different way that would right. not have been available otherwise. Right. Which was very interesting. And then also, um, she really it seems like she really trusted herself deeply mm -hmm. um, and was able to use numerology and dream books and things that definitely run through the African-American culture but are kind of hush-hush. Mm -hmm. And what was it like for you to have your mother at the helm just fully trusting her gut and like providing such an amazing life for your whole family? I mean, our lives were all about being in her aura, really. And we often would say to ourselves, 
um, what would Fanny think <laughs> about situations? We also were very protective of her because we knew what we had. You know, we knew that we had a unique mother who would do anything for us, but also was the same person who told us, you're as good as anyone and you're better than no one. That was her her motto. Um, so it was really, we knew as we were living it that it was special. This wasn't something I had to reflect back on. I knew my whole life what I had in a mother, so much so that I put off motherhood. I thought, <laughs> If I can't be the kind of mother I had, and I didn't think I could, I don't know if I should do this because a child deserves to have that kind of mother. I had to work through that. That's a little therapy session. But, um, but yeah, the other thing is the household was very magical to me. Imagine being a child and your mother's burning incense and burning candles, you know, and uh, people are saying she's lucky. Oh, your mom's such a lucky woman. You feel special. You feel like you are in a, in the midst of some very sort of uh, kind of spiritual environment that, that's nurturing and that is, it's, she cultivated luck. That's what I, I, I would say about her. Her whole thing was, it doesn't just happen. You know, you, you cultivate it by how you live and who you put yourself around. And yeah, give it a little boost now and then in ways that you can. Dreams were so big in our household. Almost every morning, my mother would ask, did you dream anything last night? And, you know, dreams have a very big role in African-American and African culture anyway, but they were, of course, about did you dream something that we could look up in a dream book and then we could play that three-digit number. You guys know what dream books are? Yeah. Yeah, so there was that piece of it. But also the idea that you that maybe spirit is speaking to you while you're asleep. Maybe your ancestors or a loved one who's gone on is trying to help you by visiting you and giving you the actual three-digit number to play to help you out in the world, to give you some resources. Like all those things were true for us. We believed it. We believed all of that. And yet, I must add this point, she didn't just rely on luck. She wasn't someone who said, I just hope it works out. My mother was forever <laughs> thinking about how to make sure that she enhanced her chances. I say, in her case, is absolutely true that she was an example of opportunity meeting preparation. And so in that way, she did not leave things to chance. So we never thought, oh, we hope we're going to, you know, be able to eat every day. It wasn't like that. Like you're living with a gambler, a high roller. That wasn't it at all. It's just way too, way too practical and too clear about what she was doing and why. So, yeah. <clears throat> and he said that he knew a man who was older than he was in Baltimore who was also involved in the numbers. And his what he said was that he knew he couldn't go to law school, yeah. but he was funding a number of young black men right. to put them into Howard and yeah. other universities because he said, you're going to be on the other side of the fence. Exactly. But I'm going to, and it sounds like your mom was also involved in that same sort of thing. It's giving the opportunity to others because Absolutely. for your mother and the other numbers run, runners, they carried so much in their heads that very easily they would have been writing software now. 
Oh, yeah. My mother took a, I found in her possessions a GED test, which stunned me because I knew she had graduated from high school. But she scored off the charts in math. (laughs) And her reading scores were very high, too. So here was someone who could have done some other things, you know. But I would say a couple more things. I know my time's running up, running out. But, um, One of the things I want to stress is that my mother made it clear to all of us that what she was doing was a legitimate business that just happened to be illegal. That was her attitude. Because her thing was, now we all know that when white folks want to get away with something, all they have to do is create a law. So her whole thing was don't get caught up on what's legal and illegal. Is it right? Is it hurting people? Is it okay? Is it helping people? Like, that's the measure of whether something is legitimate or not, right? So I think that that's really, um, yeah, I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind, you know? Yeah. So I had another point, but I forgot it. Yeah, it'll come back to me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure what it was. Yeah. I think what I want to say is just thank you all. Really, I appreciate the attention and the care and the thoughtfulness. And I mean, just to know that people care about this story and see it as, as someone said, as an American story, like that makes me very happy. So thank you. Thank you so much, Bridget, for writing your mother's story and sharing it with us. Thank you all for spending your evening with us. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.